0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Space,
1: the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds. Engage. Current Enterprise. Enterprise. This is Captain Jean-Luc Picard.
2: Captain Captain Janeway.
1: Captain Sisko. Cool. This is Captain Jonathan Archer. Red alert. Photon torpedoes. Fire. The official Star Trek podcast. Engage. Engage. Make it so. With your host, Jordan Hoffman. That, sir, is illogical. And to make sure that history never forgets. This
0: is Engage. Shailing frequencies open, sir.
3: Hello and welcome to another episode of Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. I am your host, Jordan Hoffman, special edition, special edition. I am recording this live, although half dead, from my hotel room in Las Vegas. I am on the Vegas Strip looking at all the sleaze and debauchery out my window. It's not even sleaze and debauchery. It's like a Bubba Gump shrimp shack is what I can see from my window. But um, that's not what I'm here to talk to you about. I'm here to talk to you about the Las Vegas Star Trek Convention, the big convention that's happening as we speak. Night one just ended. I'm still jet lagged and I did a full, I was for 12 and a half hours running around the convention meeting some of you. Big hugs to all my friends. Um, it was great to see so many listeners. My friend from Brazil, my friend from uh, Scotland, uh, the whole gang. Um But also hosting a lot of panels, and we're going to be delivering audio to you, the engaged listener, um, uh, over the next uh, few weeks. Got a lot of cool stuff. Had a nice 30-minute chat with René today. Um, Cool stuff with a lot of stuff about forthcoming comics and books, and got some cool stuff with some of the Discovery cast, but... The first panel I want to uh, play for you was a one-hour panel, a uh, big one in the main hall, the Leonard Nimoy Theater, with uh, the some of the producers and writers of Star Trek Discovery. You know, that show that we've been talking about. That's about to uh, launch into the stratosphere and into your hearts. Uh, so, we spoke for one hour with um, a co-executive producer, Ted Sullivan, who uh, has been... You might, If you follow him on Twitter, you've seen all of his behind-the-scenes... Uh, behind the scenes photos They're very fun With Kirsten Beyer Who we've had on this uh, program before uh, Kirsten of course uh, Novelist Has written about uh, I don't know, 10 or so Of the uh, Voyager books And is now on the staff Very interesting perspective On the show um, And also to the exec producer Akiva Goldsman Academy Award winning uh, Screenwriter Akiva Goldsman How many Academy Award winners Have we had on the show now? Uh, Mahim heme uh michael westmore and others at least two can't remember anymore um so you know what enough of my yap and let's just listen to it but it was great day one so many great costumes uh everybody looks wonderful um and i always forget everybody's name but it's like hey you're the gal who dresses up like so and so give me a big hug so nice to see everyone um and we got more coming four more days uh but before we kick it back to the panel which just concluded only a few short hours ago uh, I do want to remind everybody, of course, that this episode and many of them, uh, many episodes of Engage recently have been sponsored by our good friends at Western Digital, WD.com. And I'm going to remind you, in case you might have forgotten, that if you uh, are the type of guy or gal who is um, you know, downloading every bit of information you can find about Star Trek Discovery, be it a high-res photo or a podcast or a, uh, every trailer in the beautiful um, HD... Uh, you are eventually going to need some additional space on your hard drive. And you're going to need a solid-state drive from Western Digital, the best and greatest producers of hard drives on the planet. Don't screw around. Get one from Western Digital. WD.com slash engage uh, is where you'll go if you want a 20% discount. wd dot com slash engage and use the code would engage w d e n g a g e Uh, get the blue or the black one Um, those are the two that we uh, can offer you at a special rate and don't screw around get your hard drives today Uh, do it or be a fool okay enough of that let's kick it back to the uh, panel Uh, we're gonna hear from uh, from me and uh, by by the way the audio is recorded just from mics so there's like you'll hear like pauses that's the thunderous and wild applause of the audience that you're not going to hear. So it doesn't it may sound a little awkward, uh, but that's what's going on. And uh, it's me, Ted uh, Sullivan, uh, Kiva Goldsman, and Kirsten Beyer uh, coming to you direct from Las Vegas. Play it, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more.
0: Play it at play.it.
4: This is Engage,
0: Engage. the official Star Trek podcast. Energizer.
3: All right. How about that? How about that? A new Star Trek show, huh? Who'd have thunk it? Outstanding. Hello, everybody. My name is Jordan Hoffman. I am the host of Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. And it is my great pleasure to kick off a four-hour block of Discovery panels here at Star Trek Las Vegas 2017, day one. I hope everybody is seated. You got a cliff bar or something, because we're going to be here for a while. It's pretty exciting, and we have a zillion questions to get to, including, at the end, some questions from you, the fans. So, let's get things started with our first guest. He is a self-professed non-fanboy nerd who went to his first Star Trek convention in 1984. Lately, he's been killing it on Twitter with posts from the Discovery set at at Carter Hall and its original Fanagarian spelling. Please welcome to Star Trek Las Vegas, Ted Sullivan. Hello, Ted. Nice to see you. Uh, Our next guest, you've been reading her books for years. She is a New York Times best-selling author of Star Trek Voyager novels and has made the jump from the pages to the screen. Please welcome to uh, the stage Star Trek Discovery writer, Kirsten Beyer. (laughs) Uh, I, I, I called you Kirsten, and it's Kirsten. It is. Everybody, please, in the Leonard Nimoy Theater, repeat after me: It's Kirsten, not Kirsten. Let me hear it. Now we'll always get it right. Good. Thank you. you. (laughs) Awesome. And we have a special guest. This is exciting—a surprise special guest, an Academy Award-winning writer who went to his first Star Trek convention at the Statler Hilton Hotel in the late 1970s, and he's joining us today as an executive producer of Star Trek Discovery, Mr. Akiva Goldsman. All right. You get your, it's the executive, you get your own couch, you know, it's nice. So listen, there's television shows and there's television shows. This is Star Trek. This is the most important, biggest, and fundamental franchises in all of fandom. This is no joke. It's a serious business. I wanna know from you three, cause you know, some people in the crowd know you, some people in the crowd don't know you. I wanna know about your walk to fandom. How did you get to this particular point, and what does Star Trek mean to you? And Akiva, you're wearing a Star Trek hat. What's underneath that Star Trek hat? Is it a Star Trek mind? Oh, okay. uh, You want
4: me to go first? I want you to go first. Okay, I'll go first. Uh, my first uh, Star Trek invention was in 1976 uh, in Manhattan. I was 14 years old my mother decided it would be just fine to let three 14-year-olds rent a hotel room, bring our body weight in pot. And um, uh, Walter Koenig was there. David Gerald was there. uh, Isaac Asimov, weirdly, was there, sitting a lot of people on his knee in a sort of startling display (laughs) of being an elder statesman. and this was a time when uh, Star Trek was in syndication. It was on WPIX in New York every night at 7. Um, but already the episodes were shortened for syndication. Um, so we never really saw the whole show, although we saw more of it than was later available on television. Uh, we had no idea what the actual color palettes were. Um, you know, the, my Panasonic just recently bought color television, didn't have anything like Uh, what we saw when we went to the conventions and suddenly saw the 35-millimeter prints. The only existing copy of the cage was in black and white. Um, There was uh, uh, a blooper reel that... um, You know, none of this was available then.
3: It was all sort of this... You didn't just look it up on YouTube? Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, no, it
4: was weird because my YouTube connection didn't work well then. Um, uh, It was the first thing I ever loved. Um, It was the first... uh, piece of television that I had a relationship with. It is uh, insane that I get to do this. The 14-year-old in me wakes up every day stunned and grateful. I talked JJ into putting me into both movies. I have cameos in both movies. I am so proud and thrilled and moved by doing this that I have actually almost gotten a divorce over it um, because it has become the single most important thing uh, creatively in my life, um, and that's how I got here.
3: Well, that may be a step too far, but other than the divorce, everything sounded fantastic, so that's good. Kirsten, what about you? When did you first become a Star Trek? What was the first memory you have of, uh, of Star Trek?
2: Watching it as a kid with my brother. It was, it was the only show that we could both agree to watch and therefore not get television privileges taken away from us if we fought. So, um, so that's my first memory is just sitting in front of the TV and being amazed by this show that um, I loved. Uh, for me, falling into it creatively actually didn't happen until Voyager came along. Um, I had finished my graduate degree and a number of people that I knew had worked on that show, so I started watching it sort of to see what they had done and ended up four or five episodes in thinking, well, I have an idea for a series. And that had never happened to me before. So literally, Voyager inspired me to start writing Star Trek. And my goal then was to end up writing for the series, and it only took 20 years. So, yeah.
3: For for those that don't know, Kirsten has... Uh, written how many Voyager novels? Eleven. Eleven, okay. And it has a very specific uh, job title in addition to being a staff writer for Discovery that we're going to be talking about in three hours. So stay put, because uh, Kirsten is a very interesting, unique, and pivotal role in Star Trek, and it's a role that has never existed before. Seriously, you are going where no one has gone before in Star Trek, with this new role, so that's exciting. Yeah,
2: I actually think you may be right about
3: that. Yeah, That is scary. (laughs) Ted, who you got with you today? Who's Uh, this fella?
1: This is Jason Gorn. We haven't been allowed to um, show a lot of things behind the scenes, so early on I decided to create Jason Gorn. He travels around with me. He comes to set. You'll see a lot more of Jason Gorn from pictures that I've already taken on set that uh, will be released when the show comes out.
3: And, uh... If I'm not mistaken, you are writing for Star Trek Discovery, but you've written Star Trek before, just unproduced Star Trek. Tell us a little bit about your unproduced Star
1: Trek screenplay and when it was written. Uh, I first saw Star Trek when I was eight. Uh, It was City on the Edge of Forever, and I was very confused because it was science fiction, but it also was set in the past. Um, The hero didn't save the pretty girl at the end. It didn't make any sense, but it also moved me tremendously. Uh, And I fell in love with it right then. Uh, And then I moved to Europe. And as a kid at 10 from Boston to Geneva, and I was the only American, and I went to an international school, and it felt like the bridge of the Enterprise. And it made a lot of sense to me. Uh, And I fell in love with Star Trek more, and I didn't have a TV, but I read a lot of the books uh, and the making of Star Trek and fell in love with it more. And then when um, Search for Spock came out, my brother and I, who were obsessed with it, Saw it three times in two days, and then went home and said, "Well, what is our version of Star Trek IV? What are we going?" And so we wrote. That was our first screenplay we ever wrote, which was our version of Star Trek IV, and uh, that kind of started me on the journey of writing. Did that one have
3: dolphins and not
1: whales? (laughs) No, but it did deal with uh, a. They were flying back in the bird of prey, and they get captured by Klingons, and there's a war that is brewing, and Kirk has to. broker piece, which is very difficult for him because he just lost his son to Klingon. So there's some ties to what we're doing right now. All right.
3: Awesome. Uh, cool. Well, listen, um, a lot of us uh, have an image of we hear the writer's room, you know, hanging out in the writer's room. And, and those of us old enough to remember the Dick Van Dyke show, I think of a bunch of guys and gals uh, sitting around a table with a bunch of, you know, Chinese food cartons throwing jokes at each other. How realistic is that? I mean, there's the vision of the writer at home at 3 a.m. with a bottle of scotch writing solitary, and then there's the More writer realistic. <laughs> so which one is more like it for you guys?
4: Well, well, our room is in black and white, so that's very helpful. And Akiva always trips over an ottoman. Except when I don't. Um, yeah, it's not... Uh, we don't, no, 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 not, not, not realistic. Uh, lots of big bulletin boards. Uh, lots of jabber about uh, what could or couldn't go wrong. Um, it's actually kind of delightful, um, because a lot of writing obviously is solitary. Uh, and most of us spend way too much time by ourselves with that proverbial bottle of scotch. Um, so to get to tell stories as a group, uh, is pretty unique to television. Um, and if you get the right group, which we have, uh, it's pretty lovely.
1: Yeah, I've lied a lot before in the past about writer's rooms. Uh, uh, We are really lucky with our room. We don't have any snakes in our room. We have uh, people that are supportive, that when someone else is on the board, people come in early, they stay late. Uh, There is a mutual love and respect for Star Trek, because literally everyone in the room loves Star Trek, and they understand how important it is. The two people I'm on the couch with right now are partially writers because of Star Trek. I'm partially a writer because of Star Trek. There are other people, Erica, Bowie, Sean, all these people are there because we love it. And just like our cast, like Sinequa understands the importance of being an ambassador for Star Trek. And that's what we're trying to be in writers. So I think the room is hard. We argue sometimes. We have different opinions of what Star Trek is because it's existed for 50 years and it's different things to different people.
2: Yeah, but everybody is so passionate about it, which is part of what makes it so much fun. Um, It's a weird process. It was particularly weird for me going from being an author, um, where I never had to ask anybody else about a story point, to creating collectively. Um, But now that I have experience doing it, I am so grateful that this is the way it happens in television because um, there is no way that any one of us could have created what it is you guys are about to see. It is really the collective passion and love of um, a bunch of people who started in the room and everybody who has joined us since. It's been an extraordinary journey, really.
4: I mean, this show is a bear, you know? Um, I mean, I haven't done a lot of TV, but, you know, I did Fringe, which is um, typical... Thank you. Yay. Yay. Thank you. Um, And that was sort of, you know, typical sized, you know, smart TV sci-fi, it doesn't hold a candle to what we're doing. I mean, the complexity, then sort of the narrative ambition and just the scope of the object. I mean, that trailer is not like every visual effect shot in the series. That's really the show. I mean, that most of that is from the first three episodes. Like it's, it, it is so tremendous that it kind
1: of uh there's a lot of holding hands and jumping together and from a story standpoint because it is so serialized I mean I, I I worked on Revenge for a bunch of seasons which was a heavily serialized show it was incredibly difficult to write uh with so much backstory and that each episode had to build on the other and try to make sense of a giant jigsaw puzzle that's what we do with this. And there's a huge amount of extra burden on it because of the fact that it's Star Trek.
3: Yeah. Well, I, I do want to get into some specifics. And I know there are some things that you can say and some things that you want to hold for the reveal, because it's fun to watch the show and everybody go, aha, at that point. But um, specifically because you guys do represent sort of the hardcore fans. I mean, you're carrying this guy around like a talisman. So that shows you are a hardcore fan. Have there been moments uh, when you're working on a script where your intimate knowledge of the Star Trek lore has worked as a crutch either to say, I know what we can do here or, no, 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 I know what we can't do here.
1: I'm going to jump in and just say one thing. I think sometimes it gets in the way. <laughs> uh, it does get in the way. Okay. Because I, I and, and I think of something that Bruce Timm said once about making Justice League cartoon and he said, you know, he came up with a pitch that said, well, we're going to they, they break the, the Green Lantern ring. And everyone in the room said, you can't do that. It's indestructible. And he said, well, I think we can. It will be good for the story. And uh, he said, sometimes you need to know when to break the ring. Sometimes you need to know when to break the ring, and sometimes you need to know when you don't. Yeah. Uh, and luckily, we have a lot of people in the room who will tell you when, when to break the ring and when not to. When, when to break the ring and when maybe we got to hold on that ring. And
2: yeah, I think that's a really good way to describe it, because as much as you want to honor everything that has come before and as much as you want what we're doing to feel like a part of that universe, at the same time, you want to surprise people and you don't want to inhibit the creative process that's happening in the room um, by constantly reminding everybody where the boundaries are. Um, It's fun to let people step over the boundaries and then reel them back in a little bit. (laughs)
4: Um, and you know and I think that that what is useful is that is how the process works right you go sort of you spiral out of control um, as you're making it up and then you come back with the operative assumptions being you can't violate what we know to be canon you just can't violate so you better figure out how to work within it and it turns out there are a bunch of ways of being inductive and creative it's just it's the difference between making it up and adapting and by choosing a period of time that is within canon it turns the storytelling into adaptation but adaptation is lovely yeah. you know and uh, and has all kinds of joys um
3: that are well, well this brings up a story that that came out a little while ago about how the there, there was something that was sort of unofficially referred to as the Roddenberry Rule in previous uh, Star Trek writers' rooms. And uh, for you guys, the Roddenberry Rule is is uh, a little bit more malleable than before. Is that something that you can talk about a little bit? Or? Oh, I think the Roddenberry Rule is 2020 hindsight, right? I mean, the truth... Of course we should say what the Roddenberry Rule is, I would imagine. Does anybody it's not know n- what I'm talking about?
2: It's the no conflict between characters directly. No, con- yeah? no, no conflict between
3: characters that cannot be resolved with a quick uh, shot of Ractigino in the, you know on the promenade. So uh, something that is, if there's conflict between our main characters that lingers, and that is something that is a little bit new. So you were saying it's- Well, I think that fundamentally what we're trying to do is to suggest that
4: the vision of the Federation, which is a utopian vision of the future, and which is really vital as vital today as it was in the 60s um, we're not value neutral about that right we our bridge looks like our bridge not by accident like we are proud to be the heir to the first interracial kiss on television we are proud to be an object that attempts to talk about how people's and cultures live together and how we forge ties. That's what Star Trek is. Star Trek is to me about empathy. So fundamentally, the idea that there is no conflict on the way to utopia is absurd um, and it wouldn't be good storytelling. Uh, The idea of the Roddenberry rule, which I again think has become, uh, found its own life even more so after the original series. doesn't work at all in serialized storytelling, because as Ted said, Jim Kirk could watch Edith Keeler die and literally be ruined by it and be fine the next week, because he had to be, right? Because, and that's not the truth of storytelling today. It's not the truth of serialized storytelling. Our characters carry their losses with them from episode to episode. They carry the love that they're starting to feel or the animosity or the trust or the mistrust. And all those are the grammars of forging community, both in a fractal way as we follow Sinqua Martin-Green's character and in a global way as the Federation is tested and these ideals are tested in a context of war. Um, we know the outcome goal, we all know where it ends. So the question is, how do we get there? And we use conflict, certainly, to get there.
1: And I think there's also another element, which is, it's not just Sonequa's character, Michael Burnham, that goes through a journey. Every single character that we're seeing on this show, whether it's Saru or uh, any of the Stamets, all these characters start at one place, and they end up at a different place. And one of the things that Akiva and Aaron Harberts and Kretchenberg have been really passionate about, because they're storytellers, is to, see characters that aren't where they are at the end we see sulu and scotty and all these different characters where they ended up where they they are kind of clearly defined we're going on the journey of how they end up in those clearly defined places which is part of what a story is supposed to do
3: um i'm glad you brought up some of the individual names of characters because i do want to drill down and talk about some of them uh but before i do um, Star Trek has always been known for putting a, a little extra sci in its sci-fi, and I don't mean sci like, you know, ah, uh, you know, isn't Spock so beautiful? I mean, science and science. So uh, tell me a little bit about uh, how you were infusing science, actual science, theoretical science in this show. Science advisors, I want to know about string theory. And 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 phase space and all the stuff I don't understand, but sa- I don't understand, but sounds really cool. Uh, Kirsten, yeah, where's your degree from Princeton and uh, Caltech, and how much sci is in your sci-fi?
2: Oh, I wish I had that going for me, but I don't. What I do have, though, and where I actually think it's important for what we do, Star Trek always tries to be true to science as much as it possibly can. But some of what we do is beyond our grasp at this point. What it does have though, even for those things, is a very specific internal logic. So as long as we understand what the Heisenberg compensator is and what it does, um, it's cool. Like we we can accept without actually breaking that stuff down to the math. so in a lot of ways I see that as the role of science in what we're doing, not so much exploring new concepts that are gonna be you know, breaking all kinds of new ground in that way, but making sure that whatever it is that we're building makes sense in and of itself in a self-contained kind of way that can be then merged with everything else we've got going
1: forward. Also one thing to keep in mind, like we have Erica Lippold on our staff who's a writer who's also a PhD in neuropsychology. Uh, who just got her PhD last year while she was still writing on a TV show? Uh, Bowie Kim uh, was an archaeologist in the Middle East. Uh, I did five years of uh, research in between writing daytime and moving into uh, prime time, where I was doing uh, uh, longitudinal research on uh, magnetic imaging uh, at SRI in, in uh, Palo Alto. So I think all of us have a love for science and respect for science and it infuses our scripts and i think it infuses our stories and certainly it blows erica's mind when she sees something that doesn't quite line up and then she dives right in and tries to fix it and i think all that stuff is really really important
3: i mean it's impressive i, I watch a lot of tv and read comics i don't know what's going on this is impressive stuff so there will be still i mean we're talking about legacy and so there will still be a soupçon of treknobabble babble on this new show yeah awesome
1: because I love that stuff. I don't know what the hell they're talking about, but I love it. It's fantastic. Our actors don't always love it, although I will say Anthony Rapp is amazing at it.
3: Incredible. Right. He's, he's uh, uh, the space fungus expert. Well, let's get to it then. I had other questions, but screw it. Let's talk, let's dive in. Let's talk about these characters because I want to know, and let's start with uh, Anthony Rapp's character. I want to know a little bit about each of these folks. We've seen them in posters outside. We see them on the the trailer, but I want to get to know them a little bit. I want to know from you guys, the writers, what is the coolest thing about writing each of these characters, and what is the most, um, I don't want to say difficult, I want to say challenging thing about each of these characters. What do we need to know that's awesome about... You mentioned first Anthony Rapp's character, whose name on the show is Lieutenant...
2: Lieutenant Paul Stamets.
3: Lieutenant Paul Stamets. What is the coolest thing about writing for this guy? It's a multiple-choice it, question. It is. Yeah, well,
2: it, he's a guy who presents with a, um, a certain sort of exterior that tends to push people away. And so what's fun is finding the ways through that that... Um, finding a softer, kinder side of him that's there, um, but has got a lot of stuff in between him. Uh, the
4: him. reason that you're watching us kind of go, er, is, it harkens back to what Ted said, which is the characters present in a particular way, each and every one of them, at the start of the show. And, you know, the title is not an accident, right? So this is long-form storytelling based in character. It's not to say we don't have Plot, because god knows we have plot but fundamentally our rudder are these character journeys. our rudders are these character journeys and so what happens is you, you watch us do the math of like well if we say that does it break the heart of the surprise when the character is turned right so that's a little bit you're, it's this thing that you're getting so
3: it's the, you're saying stemets in episode one is not necessarily the same stemets in episode five. i would say that's true of almost every character yeah
2: yeah, but it's not like they're not the same person. It's right. just that various Reveal. new aspects are revealed. Right. Yes,
1: I Discuss. get it. I think of it like when you go to college and you go in with this identity, and at the end of your freshman year, I think you're a pretty different person oh than God. you are. You're
3: saying they're to listen to Sonic Youth? Is that what's happening on this show? Or, or The Cure. All right, one guy laughed. That's good. All right, so... Um, <laughs> and, and, you
4: know, it, 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 with Ted's, uh, Ted's analogy is right. We're taking... you know, The, the, the show takes place during... Uh, a sudden uh, war, you know. It's it's not. A, it, we don't fall into the middle of a war. So this is a group of people who have not necessarily worked together. It is a group of people who will have presenting identities, and then intimacy will reveal them, or just sure inundation with each other will reveal them so uh, th- that's
3: okay right all right so we're not gonna get too I, I got it in other words uh but i gotta ask a little bit about the saru guy right i think everybody wants to know a little bit about saru right yeah. he's tall he's weird looking he's uh he can smell death or something like he's that. doug
1: jones he's, he's doug amazing. jones
3: G- yeah. give me a little bit about saru where's this guy coming from what's his story The Kelpians? Tell us about the Kelpians. I don't know anything about the Kelpians. No one does yet. I know, I know. I know, we got to tune in. I know, that's the end result. we got to buy the show and watch it, I know. But tell me a little bit about Saru, because he looks so cool.
2: He does look amazing, and he is unique in terms of his species, stirring and Starfleet, right? He's one of those, the first of his kind. Um, What I... Have found fun about Saru is what Doug has brought to it. I think that initially we were all sort of searching for who this guy was going to be and Doug has so brought to life um, this person with this incredible um, brilliance but also this warmth and compassion and sense of humor and dry wit that is making the evolution of that character a lot of fun to watch as well.
1: He also makes you, both the actor and the character, he makes you laugh and he makes you cry in the same episode. And I think that's a really, really important uh, uh, aspect to have on Star Trek. You need to have some humor and you certainly need to have pathos. And Doug represents that. He is a worthy um, uh, torchbearer from, from Spock and from Data. And uh, he is, in some ways, the most human character that we have on the show which is kind of beautiful and uh i have to also say that kirsten wrote uh, basically a saru episode and when you guys see it we hesitate to say too much about it but i will tell you wait till her episode happens because it will feel like the most traditional of star trek the most beautiful and what doug does is is just simply jaw-dropping, and you will find out so much about his culture, and, and there are so many surprises about him. Yeah.
3: That sounds really cool. That sounds really neat. So um, then, of course, there is the lead character, Michael Burnham, played by Suniko Martin-Green, and uh, it was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious, When I worded this really well. Hold on. Get to my notes. We'll talk amongst ourselves. Yeah. No. Um, How are you? The hat looks good. Yeah. The hat looks you. really Did you buy good. Any
4: stuff? Do you have a t-shirt or anything? I want to get a t-shirt.
3: Well, I, I think what's interesting is that we we are going to learn a lot about Michael Burnham's background, which is a little surprising. What we have learned recently in some events like at San Diego Comic Con and whatnot, and folks may want to stick around because a few hours from now we're going to have a publishing panel where we're going to talk about some of the books and comics, and perhaps a lot of the questions that people might have about Michael Burnham are going to find themselves in that realm. That is my sort of uh, uh, suggestion for everybody to stick around. And also, um, the Klingons, right? There's a lot going on with the Klingons in this one. You've really dug in deep, and I heard a rumor that uh, you actually have Klingon language experts that are, <laughs>
2: that, yes, are help- we do.
3: that are working on the tell us a little bit about, about writing deep for the Klingons for this show.
2: It's been super fun to take a species that in some ways feels well established, but in a lot of ways when you start to dig into it has been kind of monolithic, right? Their duty, their honor, their what else. And to and to imagine what a certain period in their history might have produced. Um, has been just incredible fun and has given us all kinds of new ways to talk about and experience Klingons.
4: I think it was certainly made clear to me even when I came on board that one of the driving forces behind this war was to not vilify either side. Um, And, And so we, you know, the show is often told from both points of view. I mean, it is certainly about the Federation. See, that's our card there that says discovery. But um, there are significant sections of the narrative that are purely from the Klingon point of view in Klingon. And uh, it's a real piece of the show and that allows hopefully, the audience to participate in the uh, debate of uh, who is right and who is wrong. and maybe maybe there's
3: like a nuanced point of view to massive global events that, uh, that no. perhaps there is shading and perhaps no. in the real world we should also take into no. consideration No, no,
4: things. no. It's purely binary. Okay. <laughs> no. uh, yeah, we're trying, you know. I mean, God knows we're trying, especially today.
3: Uh, Well, you know, in a little bit, we are going to kick it out to audience questions, and I see that there are already some people lined up. We are going to let some people uh, get to that, and that should be a lot of fun. But I also want to ask, real quick, um, you know, the show is... um, The question, really, for all of you, uh, you know, this is now called the Golden Age of TV, or Golden Age of TV Mach 2, or whatever you want to call it, and, you know, doing this show... In a very unique format, which is a you know first episode is on good old fashioned channel two in New York, CBS, and then you're blazing a trail on uh, my dad calls it channel two, but on channel two, I want to see Jim Jensen. Uh, So, uh, but then you're going streaming, and it's a new deal, and it's exciting, and it is uh, giving you guys an opportunity to do what exactly? What what is streaming offering you? That is, you're able to sink your teeth into a little bit.
4: Well, for us, it is not, uh, sadly, gratuitous sex and violence. Um, uh, it, it's not, uh, much as I'm all for both of those things, uh, not really in Star Trek. Um, so what it has allowed us to do is, A, to be very serialized, you know, uh, the most serialized Star Trek ever, even including the last couple of years of DS9. And, um... And it's allowed us to be thematically deep, right? We're, we're trying to be thoughtful and uh, really trying to explore the kinds of issues that we think Star Trek has always explored. Um, not be cute about it, to be kind of thoughtful and serious about the issues of race and inclusion and alliance and alienation. and you know and also just blow up some spaceships in a really great way because it it's also um it, it, it is epic in its scope and scale as a production object too it is not like a tv show uh when it comes to the, the sort of the representation of ships and you know it's like the movie i mean it's a different aesthetic but it is of that scope and scale
3: well, well that's that's a really good point is that we've been talking a lot about the character and the story then let's not forget this is gonna look really cool i mean talk a little bit about the uh which is not really specifically your department but the post-production and the the, the look of the ship you guys have seen it we're all dying to know ted you're carrying around a gorn with you how flipped out are you by these ships and
1: whatnot I- I am, but I, 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 it blows me away, and it's super, super exciting. But I have to tell you, um, Star Trek has never been about the ships or the sets or the costumes or the props for me. It's about what is the metaphor <laughs> that they're exploring in that episode or that movie. And so I, I've never gotten, I, it didn't throw me when I saw the motion picture, and it looked different from the TV show. It didn't throw me that a couple years later that Wrath of Khan looked very different from the motion picture. I just liked what they were doing creatively, and I understood the story that they were telling, but especially the themes. And what I'm most proud about that we're dealing with in this version of Star Trek and that, that it is a serialized show so we're able to really explore it is that it's about what's going on in the world right now. We've been at war for 15 years that changes you and it makes you uh, it, it challenges you to be your best version of yourself and sometimes you're not always and then how do you find your way back from that uh, to me that's a very important use of what Star Trek can be so yes I freak out when I'm standing on a bridge with Michelle Yo, <laughs> I freak out when I'm in an editing room uh, Akiva Kirsten and I were just talking about an episode that we just saw, and it's amazing. Uh, like, Wrath of Khan, good, it's really good. <laughs> um, so that's awesome, but it's also not why I love Star Trek. Right.
2: But having said all that, and that is totally and completely true, there are hundreds and hundreds of people who have devoted the better part of the last year of their lives to reimagining the physical stuff in our universe, and have done so in a way that I think is truly Astonishing, and I and I really do think you guys will too. It's all in service of story and character, um, but they have given it their all.
4: There's like a three D printed phaser that has, hef- I mean, it literally does everything but shoot. I mean, it has heft and you feel, I mean, and and it's sort of the kid in you just sort of yeah. loses, you, you lose
3: your mind.
1: Go look at the props. Go, I mean, go look at the content. Yeah. It's insane. I, when I held the tricorder, I just started shaking. I didn't know what to do.
3: I mean that's what they get. like you say it is all about the story and the ideas. Luckily enough, the stuff's really cool too. I and mean, that's a little extra thing with Star Trek. Well, yes. Uh, so there is an exhibit here that's opening tomorrow. It's that way and down the hall. You get to see a lot of the cool costumes, uh, Klingons uh, costumes. that uh, you get to see.
1: Um, and Mario is. I mean, who does the props is unbelievable. He, I can't tell you how hard he works. And when you see it up close, these things aren't just camera ready. They're ready for the real world.
3: Yeah, no, that, there's a Batleth in there that'll shen, send, send you to Greythor. Let me tell you, there's a serious Batleth in there. Um, so you know what? It's time. We're going to talk to some of the fans now. Strap on your seatbelt. We're going to start over here. You, sir, in uh, wearing enterprise uniform, have you got a question? Absolutely. First of all, I wanted to thank you guys for being here. This opportunity is incredible. It's just, it's amazing. Thank, thank you. Thank you for having
1: us. It's exciting for us too.
3: I wanted to ask you guys when you first step into the writing room when you know that you're going to be doing discovery, did you know did you have in your mind the arc you wanted to go did you know the final destination and as you're writing the characters, did those characters speak out to you and, and, and change what you had in mind for the destination as you're going along or did it or did it go business planned did it go exactly the way you planned?
2: God knows
4: <laughs> no, nothing has ever gone as planned
1: um, but That's
3: not necessarily. That's, that's not necessarily that's not a, bad a bad thing. I, I,
1: I will tell you one thing that Waylon Green told me when I first started at Law and & Order. And Waylon Green is an amazing writer. He wrote The Wild Bunch and, and The Bodyguard, and he ran all four Law and & Order. And he's basically my TV dad. I spent Christmas with him. He's an amazing person. Uh, my first episode, I started kind of freaking out, and he noticed as we were working, I said, you seem upset. And I said, well, the story's changing a lot. And he said, well, I hope so. Because if it doesn't, then it was a first draft idea and really boring. And we have a theme and we're sticking to the theme, but I think it has changed and evolves as you see it
4: develop. Yeah, I mean, I think Brian and Alex kind of created a season arc, um, which had very clear signposts, which I think we've held to all the way through. Um, And then within that, for sure, you know, um, the story teaches you what the story is, right? Like, when you're writing something, uh, you don't really know what's coming. I mean, you have an idea, and you chase it, but, you know, uh, I wasn't kidding. Nothing has ever gone as planned in my entire life. I, I'm still waiting for something
1: that was planned.
2: Well, yeah, and even the story that Brian and Alex had in mind initially uh, it took time to come into any kind of form that the rest of us could then start hanging story and character on. Um, but it was... Just a very collaborative, organic thing—a bunch of people who love this idea, sitting around imagining different ways in which it could have happened, and who would be involved in it. You know.
1: And one other thing is, when you cast someone, it changes the story. When you when you put people together in a room, it changes the story. I've never been involved in a show before where the pilot wasn't even written when I came on. It was still there was a story area, but it hadn't even been cast. So once you get Sonequa, then you see, oh, well, that's, that's who Burnham is. And once you put Doug Jones in there, you go, oh, well, that's who Saru is. And if you don't alter your course or adjust to who those artists are and what they bring to the table, then you're forcing a square peg into a round hole, and that's not good storytelling. I think we have a question on this
3: side over here. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, We've witnessed big political and social divides across the U.S. and Europe. Have any storylines or themes from Discovery been inspired by such events?
4: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Look, uh, I was thinking about uh, when Star Trek got cancelled in 69, 68 was a turning point in American history, it was Tet, it was My Lie, it was Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King killed. Um, it was a terrible time for America, and Star Trek promised hope. I- I'm not saying the ensuing decades haven't been complex, but we're pretty f- f- right now. and And so... The truth is, we're really trying to be in dialogue with what's happening in the world because we want there to be hope. Thank you.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you.
1: And I think we have to honor what's going on in the world. Uh, otherwise it's not a realistic story. Yeah.
3: So is there an Anthony Scaramucci on Discovery somewhere? Or? <laughs> yeah, but he only made it through an episode and a half. <laughs> I get. <laughs> Actually an an assist, basically, yeah. I I, I get an assist on that joke, come on, I set that up. All right, we got a question here on the left. Yes, good afternoon,
1: thank you all for coming. This panel is a great pleasure. Um, My question is for everyone, and I'm assuming that you've all seen the last three feature films that have come out. And, you know, since 2009, Star Trek has become kind of different than it was in its previous incarnations, with tone, texture, characterization, the amount of action, et cetera. In your opinion, does Star Trek Discovery, is it very similar,
3: mildly similar, or dissimilar to uh, the last three movies? Like being at the eye doctor, is it number one or number two, number two or number one? (laughs) But it's a good question. Uh, Who would like to take it first? Uh, Very
4: very mildly, sort of, in various ways. Star Trek itself is complicated. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Enterprise, which, you know, gets a bad rap, uh, is its own thing, as is DS9, uh, as is the original series, as is the animated series. Um, We are bigger than any of the shows, so in that way we're kind of more like the movies. Um, Our sets are giant and very filmic. We are very visual effects heavy in terms of, uh, there's no, I mean, if I could, I, I'm, I've directed one, I'm directing, literally you can't point a camera without there being a green screen. I mean, you know, it's, it's big. So in that sense, we're, we're like the movies. Um, uh, I, well, I can say only this, we're not in the Kelvin timeline. We're not in the, we're, we're in the, you know, we're the original series timeline. Yeah. And so, we are resonant with those stories. We are the precursor, we're 10 years before TOS, so we're telling those sorts of stories. So uh, we're the same and different.
1: And, and I would also, just to add to that, say that we have so much more freedom to actually delve into storytelling. I think we, 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 we don't have to do a, just a big budget action thing that's gonna play everywhere all the time. We have a lot of action, yes. But we get to really explore some stories and character because we have 15 hours to do it.
2: Yeah, and I think some of what you are experiencing as the difference between what came before and what you saw in those movies and what you're anticipating seeing now is also just the advancement of technology that we're, I think, taking advantage of and putting to good use. I I
3: I think it's a good question, and we'll know this time next year. We can all discuss it, you know, we're gonna know. And the trailer. Certainly action-packed, but the whole show is not zooming things and exploding things. I mean, we're going to, we're going to, it's, I'm curious myself. So we're going to go now onto this side and we have a question.
0: Yeah, I just want to ask you as a group, what helps you to come up with ideas for uh, Star Trek? And what do you hope people will take from it after they watch the episode of the series?
3: So where, where do you get ideas and what do you hope people will get from those? Uh, what do you hope people will get from it? After they finish? Singing? One of the
1: great things about having a writer's room is everyone is an idea generator and everyone has a different um, agenda. So I'm writing, uh, uh, for me, the episode I'm writing right now has a lot of the environment in there. That's something that I'm concerned about. I'm worried about. Li- I'm finding the Star Trek metaphor for it. Uh, so news, your friends your husbands and wives, your partners, uh, who you interact with that day. I think everything in life infuses your story. I think, I mean.
2: Well, yeah, and for me, the, the other thing that has always been uh, particularly inspirational is whatever is particularly making me angry at any given time. That tends to inform a lot of my storytelling. Hmm.
4: That's just weird. <laughs> um, like, uh, I, um, I, I I hope that what, we are able to do is to share a point of view that says that uh, we can appreciate each other's differences and still learn to empathize with each other and that we are, although we may seem different on the outside, fundamentally the same within. I think that is Star Trek's great message. and. I hope we can import some of that again.
0: Awesome, and I love friends, by the way, it's awesome.
3: <laughs> awesome, very cool. Thank you. Um, we have a question here on the left from this gentleman yes. in the hats. Thank you again for coming out. And as a, uh, a budding screenplay writer myself, you haven't seen anything, and I'm not signing autographs later, but I was just wondering, like, as a collaborative effort, how you guys get together and figure out, okay, day-to-day, nine-to-five, in the writer's room, how do you guys tackle the upcoming episodes and divide
2: the, the work, technical? It starts really big, like the broadest possible view of a story. And the process is really about drilling down, taking ever smaller pieces and trying to bring them into focus and figure out what we're trying to say and what our characters are trying to say. And it's, it, this whole thing kind of only became clear to me fairly recently when I got to go up to Toronto for the very first time and watch an episode get filmed. It dawned on me finally that we start as far back as we can possibly get. And as we move through the process of boarding a story, breaking a story, and then moving to an outline, and then moving to a script, we're just getting ever more specific. Right, till we get to the moment when we're actually filming it and all this life is happening around the words that we wrote. And then we move into an editing bay and we start looking at, you know, fractions of seconds of it. So it's from the from the most general to the most specific you can imagine is kind of how I see it.
1: And really it's it's Alex, it's Akiva, it's Aaron and Gretchen sitting in kind of in their star chamber. And then they kind of create where we're gonna go, and then they kind of bring in a piece of marble, and then we all start chipping away at it. But they have the hardest job, I think, because it's the macro version. It's figuring out where are we going on a map of infinite possibilities. And that's, it's impressive to watch those people come in and say, we're gonna go to that star. And it's an honor to kind of watch that happen and to play a small role in making it a reality. Uh, We've got a question over there on the right.
2: Hi, first, uh, thanks for being here. I'm just fascinated by the whole writing process and I appreciate you guys being here and talking about what you do. Uh, My specific question is for Kirsten Beyer. I wanna say I love your Voyager novels, I'm a huge fan. I think they're some of the best (laughs) Trek novels that are out there. Thank you, that's very kind of you. And I wondered how writing those Voyager novels informed your writing on Discovery and how much of an adjustment it was writing for the 23rd instead of the 24th century. That was actually a very big adjustment. You have to think of pretty differently um, about just what exists and what doesn't exist yet and what we call things and don't call things. But for me, the thing that helped in terms of the novels, in terms of preparing me for this was The purpose that the novels have served over time in the Trek universe is to take little corners of story that are unexplored or underdeveloped and to build as much story as we can around them. And in some ways, that's exactly what discovery is. We picked a moment in time and have tried to expand into you know, a full story of this particular period that you've never seen before. Um, so that part of it was very similar. But yes, the time period was a really big adjustment for sure.
3: Thank you. On this side.
0: Okay. So this might be the least deep question <laughs> that's when get asked. Um, so, Star Trek's always had kind of a monocultural take on the other alien cultures. I know you're kind of branching away from that with the Klingons, with showing their language and stuff. Are there any plans to do that with other um, alien species, like the Vulcans, and the Andorians, and even the Gorn?
4: Not the Gorn.
0: <laughs> Not the Gorn. <laughs> um,
4: the Gorn. The Gorn's tricky. You know, The first encounter with Gorn is in TOS, and yet somehow we are all obsessed with Gorn in our shop. <laughs> um, Uh, Yeah, I mean, uh, Klingons are the focus. There's definitely a medium deep dive into Vulcan, uh, into being Vulcan. um, And then there's uh, some old fan favorites, but not really that, not with any real sort of penetrative depth. Um, So Klingons, mostly Vulcans a little bit, then, you know, more hodgepodgey.
3: A couple of uh, a couple of surprises down the line for fans, but get to know the Kelpians. You're saying? Well, Kelpians. yeah. I mean, the Kelpians, the concept, the conceit behind the Kelpians, which is sort of fun, is
4: they're actually uh, they're pretty binary. Speaking of binary, that they are, uh, they basically live in fight or flight, um, and uh, and they have a whole. They're actually sort of uh, they are the species that was fed upon uh, on their native world. So it's. Pretty interesting. Their view, Saru's view of the shades of gray that exist when a bunch of uh, non-binary uh, sentient beings work together. And yeah, he's the character is a really interesting character. And as uh, these guys have said, um, Doug Jones is spectacular, and the combination's neat.
3: Awesome. Well, you know, we have time for one more question. Let's hear it on the right.
2: Hi. Uh, So we talk a lot about the creative process within the writing room itself. How often are you on set during filming and you hear an actor say a line of dialogue and you're like, hmm, that's not really working the way I thought it was. Let's try this. How often does the script and dialogue itself change and how much do you have an impact on that while filming is taking place?
1: Uh, Well, I think it changes all the time. I mean, unless it's something that is uh, really vitally important to the plot or where we're going somewhere else. I always listen to performance rather than the specific words. Uh, and that's why we have an, we have amazing script supervisors who then will turn to you and say, is it okay that they change this to this? Sometimes you get on the set and you realize it's overwritten and you can get away with half of what you wrote. Sometimes uh, the set does half your talking for you like in the sense of oh look where we are it's, I, I described all of the stuff in dialogue I don't need it um, and then sometimes an actor might it just might not sound right coming out of their voice and you have to adjust for it uh, and that's not a bad thing that it always ends up better that's what I, I love about this process and I love about being in a writer's room and I love about the collaborative uh, art of making TV is a DP, a director of photography, has an idea of what the scene is, and the costume designer and the wardrobe, I mean, and the props, and every single person has their take on it, and then it all comes together and makes something really amazing. And that's even before you get music and editing and special effects, all that other stuff come in. People just keep building on the idea and make it better. It's incredible.
3: Excellent. Well, thank you know, you. believe it or not, we have warped through an hour of time here. So I want to say thank you very much to our three uh, guests who have joined us today. Thank you. Can we get a big Thanks, round everyone. of applause for Ted and Kirsten and Akiva? And uh, they're going to be around...